You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today, part two of The Murder of Dora Hand, Dodge City, 1878, Tracking the Killer. A little review. The place, Dodge City, Kansas. The time, we're going to place you back on October 5th, 1878. The event, the popular nightclub singer Dora Hand has been found dead. All the evidence leads to James Kennedy, the son of a wealthy Texas cattle rancher, who has ridden out of town on a fast horse with the horseshoes removed to make it difficult to track. The Marshal of Dodge City, Charlie Bassett, has put together a posse to track Kennedy, who has a 10-hour head start. We know for sure from newspaper accounts that Bassett's posse consisted of Wyatt Earp, Bad Masterson, Bill Tillman, and very likely, at least for a while, William Duffy, who served as a deputy sheriff in Dodge as well, although there are some conflicting accounts as to whether or not he rode with the posse. We also know from biographies, newspaper accounts, letters, and historians what the mindset of the posse was and what their decisions were based upon. The Ford County Globe reported the inquest in their October 8, 1878 edition. The inquest took place just after daybreak on October 4th and was presided by Judge Cook. Present were Wyatt Earp, Charlie Bassett, Bill Tillman, and William Duffy. A handful of jurors milled around the bench, speaking in quiet tones and reviewing paperwork. Dorahan's body lay rigid on a table near a row of chairs reserved for the coroner's jury. Mayor Doug Kelly stood next to her body, grieving. Judge Cook spoke. I've examined the once lovely Dorahan who was so foully murdered in her sleep. I've talked with Sheriff Masterson about the shooters. The verdict reads as follows. An inquisition holding in Dodge City in said county on the 4th of October, 1878, before me, a justice of the peace of Dodge Township, acting as coroner on the body of Fanny Keaton, also known as Dora Hand, there lying dead by the jurors whose names are thereunto subscribed. Said jurors do say under oath that Fanny Keaton came to her death by gunshot wound, and that in their opinion, the said gunshot wound was produced by a bullet from a gun in the hands of one James Kennedy. Outside the courtroom, a number of men had gathered to volunteer to join the posse that would be riding out. Marshal Bassett had deputized Bill Tillman, who Bat had insisted on, knowing that Tillman was a good rifle shot and a steady tracker. 
The Dodge City Times, in their October 12th edition, called the assembled posse as intrepid a posse as ever pulled a trigger. Charlie Bassett, the oldest of the bunch at 31, led the posse out of town on the afternoon of October 5th. They were all loaded for a long ride and all carried rifles, handguns, food, water, and enough ammunition to take on the Mifflin King Ranch if necessary. Bassett had become the county's first sheriff at the age of 26 and had served five years in law enforcement, covering three states, riding with posses, and facing down and bringing back lawbreakers of every stripe. Bill Tillman wrote of Bassett later, His boyish face belied the steel beneath, and described him as a steady, level-headed officer who seldom displayed any kind of alarm, no matter what the crisis. Charlie Bassett was also part owner of the Long Branch, and no, it wasn't uncommon in those days for a lawman to own or at least partner in a saloon. The pay for sheriff, which was a very dangerous job, was only $100 a month. Most town councils understood that the job was offered as a part-time occupation, and as long as their saloon ownership didn't cross ethical paths with their keeping the law, it was accepted. The posse headed south, and by the time they reached the Arkansas River, thunderheads were developing in the distance. The men dismounted under a thin row of cottonwood trees lining the bank of the river while their horses drank. Bat turned to Charlie and said, I think he's headed back to his ranch in Tescosa. Charlie replied, I think he's taking the Jones and Plummer trails to the Texas Panhandle all the way home. And seeing as how he's on a horse without shoes, tracking him's going to be slow, so we've got to be right on figuring out where he's headed to beat him to it. Bat answered, He might be on his way to Cheyenne. He had bragged to his friends that he had people there who would help him if he ever needed it. And then Wyatt spoke up. His buddy Ben Thompson's not in Cheyenne now. He's in Texas. I think he's trying to make us think he's headed for Wyoming. When we hit this oncoming rain, which will wipe out any tracks he has left, he'll turn toward Texas. His daddy's got an army, and he'll use it. Tillman then spoke up. He'll cut over the Texas Trail into the nation, then double back and cross the ford in the river near Wagon Bend Springs. Wyatt and Charlie both agreed. They all knew that by the time the storm hit, what few tracks there were would be gone. Their guesswork, based on their knowledge of the killer and the country, and having none of the modern conveniences we have today, had to be right. They all mounted up and rode south, with Wyatt hanging back to watch their back trail. He and they knew that Kennedy's cowboy friends back in Dodge were riding their back trail, just waiting for an opportunity. They were no friends of the law in Dodge. Leading that bunch was Dr. Henry Hoyt, who carried a personal grudge against Wyatt, and he wanted to even the score. So did the Texans, who had placed a $1,000 bounty on Earp's head. There was an incident in Dodge just a few months before that involved Wyatt's shooting of a cowboy named George Hoy. As far as I can tell, no relation to Dr. Hoyt, who, by the way, palled with Jesse James and flavored his days with the outlaw crowd between Tascosa and Fort Sumner, New Mexico. On July 26th, less than three months previous, Wyatt had been making the usual rounds of Dodge City and had stopped outside the door of the comic theater where comedian Eddie Foy was entertaining. Wyatt noticed a cowboy pass by him on a horse and then make a turn at the end of the street. Then he started the same routine, passing Earp again, this time, as it appeared, taking a closer look to make sure it was Earp. Earp carried two guns, one his sawed-off buntline revolver, and there's a story behind that one, and the other a 45 cold peacemaker. After the second pass, the cowboy spurred his horse and rode past Earp again, firing a volley of shots, all of which missed Earp, but smashed into the building front behind him. 
The cowboy continued down Front Street as Wyatt drew his bunt line and, steadying it, hit the cowboy in the back, felling him from his horse. After the first shots, Bad Masterson, who had been in the theater, came out, gun drawn, and seeing that a few other cowboys were attempting to get a beat on Wyatt, opened up on them as Wyatt fired on George Hoy. Hoy was carried to the doctor's office, where they soon got his name. There was a warrant out on him for crimes he had committed in Texas. He admitted just before he died that a wealthy cattleman in Texas had promised to cover his legal troubles if he killed Wyatt. He didn't name names. George Hoy hung on until July 27th, and after he died, the cattleman gave him a grand funeral, telling the newspaper that he was innocent of any wrongdoing, and in no way was he a criminal. Such was the tension between the law in Dodge City and the cowboys and cattlemen. About 30 miles south of Dodge City stood a run-down mud-and-wood store known as Dugan's. As small as it was, it served as a stage stop, saloon, and general store. Three horses were tied at the hitching rail, and for that reason, not knowing what might be waiting inside, only two members of the posse walked in, Bad Masterson and Bill Tillman. Three cattlemen, who sounded like Texans, were seated in the back of the room playing poker. When they saw the two known Dodge City men, silence prevailed, along with a heavy feeling in the air, you could have cut with a knife. The two lawmen walked up to the bar. The owner, Dugan, a big man with sagging jowls and thinning black hair, said, It's two bits for a bucket of water for your horses. Bat spoke up. We're looking for someone who might have come by here. It's still two bits, Dugan replied. Tillman described Kennedy and asked if Dugan had seen him, and Dugan said, "'No, nah, no one fitting that description has come through.' Bat looked over at the cowmen playing poker, who had turned their attention back to their cards and were ignoring them. Dugan sensed what Bat was thinking, and told Bat that the cowmen were working for a local spread and had come in to load up on provisions, then decided to stay for a game of poker. "'What did this Kennedy do?' asked Dugan. Tillman answered, "'He shot and killed a woman in Dodge. "'Her name was Dora Hand.' Dugan's face fell. "'Damn shame,' he said. "'I saw her sing at the Union Church.' Dugan looked at Tillman. "'Did you know her?' Tillman answered, "'Yeah, I knew her.' Before leaving, Bat asked Tillman to keep any word of their passing through to himself. Dugan followed them outside as they mounted up, and Dugan said, "'I hope you kill him.' Bat answered, "'It may come to that.' We'll return to our story right after these brief sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, back to our story. Bill Tillman had known Dora Hand. 
"'He was part owner of the Crystal Palace Saloon, "'one of the many places where Dora performed, "'pulling in a big crowd wherever she did. "'Bill Tillman was twenty-four years old "'and had already lived what many would call a full life, "'spending his childhood days in the middle of Sioux Indian Territory in Minnesota. "'He got his first scar when he was grazed by an arrow as a baby. "'At the age of six, he could shoot a rifle, "'and as one of six children, did often, "'as Indian raids were common in those years.' In 1859, his family moved to Atkinson, Kansas, and Bill worked the farm with his brothers and sisters, the brothers being too young to enlist in the Civil War, as his father and eldest brother did. When he was 12 years old, he was returning from a blackberry hunt and asked if he had seen anyone ride through with a team of mules and a wagon. They'd been stolen in Abilene, he explained, and the marshal had trailed him for 400 miles. Bill told him that the thief had passed him on the road that led to Atkinson just recently. The man asked Bill his name, and he gave it, and then Bill asked the lawman who he was. And the man answered, Marshal Bill Hickok. Nice to meet you. Thanks for the information. As it turned out, Hickok caught the thief soon after. Bill had been so impressed with Hickok that he swore he would someday be a lawman just like him. As mentioned in Part 1, following a few years of hunting buffalo for the railroad, which was on its way to Dodge, Tillman worked as a merchant, a contractor, a land speculator, a horse racer, a cavalry scout, and livery stable and saloon owner. Earlier that year, he'd been accused by Bat of participating in a train robbery, but the charges were dropped four days after his arrest when he proved innocent. Then a pair of stolen horses were found at his livery stable, but another investigation showed he had no part in the crime. Tillman made it clear to both Bat and Marshal Bassett that he was an honest and steady man and that he wanted to enter law enforcement. It should be remarked that it is the way of the West to give a man a chance despite what sometimes looks like a bad record. In the West, many times, so-called bad men were named so because of the reputation of carrying a gun and not backing down for anyone. And so it was with Tillman. He was an honest man who had been wrongly accused. Now he was wearing the badge of a deputy marshal, and he knew where his future lay. Bill was to stay in law enforcement, for the most part, until his death at age 70, which came in the process of hunting down a criminal. And the name of Bill Tillman has become a legend to those who know the West. The posse rode hard south, leading in the direction of Meade Center, which later became Meade City. Meade's claim to fame today is the Dalton Gang Museum and Hideout, where the infamous train robbers known as the Dalton Gang went to hide out and count the loot. In the years around 1890... Meade Center was south-southwest of Dodge, by about 50 miles. Wyatt and Bill had guessed right, although at this point in their ride, they didn't know it for sure. Kennedy had gone more west than south, leading for Ulysses and the north fork of the Cimarron River, hoping to throw his trackers off, if indeed they were following him, but later switched his direction south and east toward Fargo Springs, his objective being to cross the Cimarron into Texas, not far from Fargo Springs, exactly where the posse had him figured. That northern part of the Cimarron is also called the Dry Cimarron and was often used as a crossing for cattle. James may have been thinking his trackers were thinking he would cross there. As they were watering the horses, Charlie thought for a minute, then lifted his horse's head up out of the water. He was picturing the route they would have to take in his mind. Kennedy's father's ranch was near Tascosa, Texas. Bassett was sure that Kennedy had doubled back southward and eastward after faking a westerly direction. And once he did double back, he was going to have to cross the river, and there were only a few good crossing points in this area. The grassy plain stretched for miles here, 
there was no sign of human habitation. Near the future town of Kismet, Kansas, Wyatt spotted the hoof marks of an unshod horse. He knew Indians favored unshod horses, and this area was full of Comancheros who weren't against taking a scalp if there was something in it for them. But they usually didn't ride alone, and to attack an armed posse was generally not in their best interest. The sun was setting and dark clouds were filling the horizon. Rain, and now nighttime, would make any tracking impossible. Lightning crashed over their heads, and thunder boomed. The men had already pulled their slickers out of their packs and started looking for cover. Kennedy was also holed up, having dug a depression out of a sandbank. If the river didn't get too high, he was thinking, he would be crossing tomorrow. Yesterday he had stopped at a stage stop and asked if anyone had seen a posse, but no one had. He needed sleep, but this rain was freezing cold, making that difficult. With a little luck, he would run into some of his trail hands from his Tescosa ranch. They'd be looking for him, for sure. And so what if I'm caught, he was thinking, as he drifted off toward sleep. We can buy off witnesses. Hell, we can take Dodge off the map if we have to. And Kelly had it coming anyway. The posse had set up a makeshift tent, more of a lean-to, and lit a fire, but the cold, driving rain was still felt. Bat rubbed his legs, which always hurt in cold weather like this, due to an injury he'd received in a gunfight in Mobiti, Texas, about three years before. Bat was twenty-three then, enjoying some time away from buffalo hunting, and enjoying some gambling time in a dance hall. After the game, Bat retired to his room with a young lady named Molly Brennan. But back at the table, a player named Sergeant Melvin King was still shaking his head and swearing that Bat had cheated him. Finally, King, drunk, drew his six-gun and went up to the room he'd seen Bat enter. He pounded on Bat's door and waited for him to answer. Bat opened the door, thinking that his friends wanted to join him for a nightcap. King stepped into the room and opened fire. Molly came between Bat and one of the bullets and was critically wounded. Bat was shot in the pelvis, but he managed to grab his gun and kill King before he collapsed in pain. The local doctors couldn't save Molly. King was dead. An army surgeon was called to remove the bullet from Bat's midsection, and he did, but Bat would walk with a limp for the rest of his life, becoming known for the silver-handled cane that he always used. The limp and the wound never got in Bat's way. Wyatt once described Bat Masterson, even as a cripple, he was a first-class law officer. Bat had left home at age 18 with his older brother Ed, and soon they were hired down with a party of buffalo skinners in southwestern Kansas, not far from where he now found himself sheltered from the rain and hunting a different type of animal. Just four years previously, in 1874, Bat had been buffalo hunting and stopped at a trading post called Adobe Walls. The Southern Plains Indians had chosen that time and place to band together and attack that raiding post early in the morning. The men would have been surprised if it were not for a loud crack of one of the supporting timbers of the post, which woke them up. Someone yelled, Indians! And the men raced toward the portholes, which had been built into the sides of the building, where they were all soon firing their sharps 50 buffalo guns at the oncoming charge of mounted Indians, with deadly accuracy. And these men were all experienced riflemen. The assault was to continue on and off for two weeks, but after the fifth day, Bat and a friend slipped out, managing to get past the Indians in the dark and head for help. The Battle of Adobe Walls went into the history books as one of the last large mounted assaults made by the Plains Indians, but unlike the Battle of the Little Bighorn two years later, during which an entire company of 7th Cavalry was wiped out, the Battle of Adobe Walls was a lopsided victory for the buffalo hunters. 
By the afternoon of the second day of the hunt for James Kennedy, the posse was confident, despite the fact that they turned up no more clues than that one print of an unshod hoof. They were muddy and tired, but not in the least deterred. Their horses were worn after a long day's travel. They stopped at a sod house with a porch in the front and smoke coming from the chimney. Next to the house was a corral and a crude shelter where they could put up their horses for the night, assuming they had an invitation, which most people this far out in the country were happy to give. Bat dismounted and approached the porch, and as he did so the owner came out the front door and asked if anyone had been seen in the vicinity recently. The rancher nodded and said, Yesterday, before the storm, and he seemed to be in a hurry. Bat was faced with a choice. They could ride out now, with darkness coming soon, or stay, and get a fresh start early in the morning. We're going to hold up here for a bit, he told the rancher. Help yourself, said the man, and the men dismounted, removed the saddles from the backs of their weary horses, and placed them in the shelter. We'll be happy to reimburse you for the grain and a meal if you have enough. The man waved for them to enter the house and said, No need to pay me. We've got food enough. Come on in. The men went in, but Wyatt stayed on the front porch for a good while watching the horizon for any movement, then went around back and watched some more. When he was satisfied, he joined the others inside. They would take turns standing guard outside through the night. It rained all that night, and the sound of the thunder soon lulled the ones inside to a deep sleep. James Kennedy woke up tired and wet, having found a slight overhang that offered partial shelter from the rain and the wind. This was a sunny morning, and his thinking was that the river would probably recede enough to cross by early afternoon. If so, he'd be headed for the Laurels Ranch, a 130,000 acres spread about 30 miles from Corpus Christi. He thought back to his brief time with the Texas Rangers. His father had pulled some strings to get him in, but that only lasted five months. That just wasn't the life he wanted. He wanted the gambling, the women, and the occasional chance to have his name known as somebody to fear. The posse, upon waking up the next morning, were playing on a hunch that Kennedy would have to pass this way again to get to the river. According to an account in the October 12th edition of the Dodge City Times, Tillman and Masterson had positioned themselves behind a cluster of boulders a few hundred yards from the side ranch house. The hours slowly passed by as the sun rose up into the sky. Charlie and Wyatt had taken up a similar position which afforded a good view. Charlie went to his roan, slid his hand down the horse's leg, and picked up the left front hoof. Mud and packed dirt had packed up the space between the hoof and the shoe, and Charlie picked at it with his knife, cleaning it out. Wyatt kept watch with his binoculars. Charlie methodically worked his horse's shoes and then said, We need to turn these horses further out so they can graze. There's nothing here, and we need to put more distance between us and the ranch. We can't leave any signs of a posse for him to see. They removed their rifles from the scabbards, slapped their horses on the rumps, and the horses went off to graze. They were confident they had the right spot, and that Kennedy would choose this spot to head for the river crossing. They could easily have been wrong, and the spot could have been miles away. To add to their doubt was the fact that the rancher had seen a rider pass by the day before. If this was Kennedy, why would he come back twice? They could only assume the water had been too high. Noon came, then two o'clock, then three, then four. Then Bat spotted a lone rider. Wyatt later noted in his biography, 
Masterson, who had the eye of a hawk, observed a rider. As the rider drew near, Bat whispered, "'That's Kennedy. I know by the way he sits his horse.' Wyatt was watching through his binocular. After a minute he said, "'He's right. That's him.' James was heading straight towards them. All James could see was an open range on all sides. He skirted the dry bones of a buffalo, and then noticed that his mount was pulling back a little. He prodded it with his spurs. Wyatt was watching him. "'We'll drop him out here. I don't think he'll fight. He'll probably make a run for it. Remember this. Kelly wants him alive. He wants to see him hang.' Bat looked at the position of their horses, which were now scattered too far to reach without being seen. He swore. If Kennedy spotted their mounts, he'd be running. Bat lifted his sharps. I'll attend to Kennedy, he said, then to Wyatt. If he runs, shoot his horse. James was approaching the sod house. His horse neighed once, and James looked up, alerted, but saw nothing. He was about 75 yards from the posse when he brought his horse to a stop, and it was at that point that he saw four saddled horses milling about. At that point, James broke out into a cold sweat. In one motion, he drew his pistol and wheeled his horse about. Wyatt, Bat, Charlie, and Bill raised up and leveled their weapons at Kennedy. Bat said halt and cocked his weapon, and James fired at him, missing. In 1878, pistols were too accurate past 25 yards. Sharp's rifles could bring down a person at 1,000 yards, if handled by someone who knew how to do it. Billy Dixon had done it at the Battle of Adobe Walls, dropping an Indian chief to end that two-week-long battle. Kennedy's horse went into a gallop, and at that moment a fifty caliber slug from Masterson's sharps entered his left shoulder. Kennedy's horse, terrified by the shooting, was racing away with Kennedy still on him when the posse fired at the horse, bringing him down on top of Kennedy, crushing his already wounded shoulder and arm. The posse approached Kennedy. The horse was dead. Kennedy was pinned beneath the horse. Charlie retrieved the two forty-four caliber pistols that Kennedy had lost when he fell. Kennedy looked up at Wyatt and said, "'Did I get that bastard, Kelly?' Wyatt answered, "'No, but you got someone else.' Dora Han was asleep in Kelly's bed. Kennedy was stunned. He stared at Wyatt and the others with pain and disbelief. Then he looked at Bat, who was carrying his sharps. "'You son of a bitch! You should have made a better shot than that!' "'Well?' said Bat. You damn murdering son of a bitch. I did the best I could. And Kelly wants to see you hang. While the others lifted the dead horse, Bat pulled Kennedy out by his wounded arm. The bones crunched, and Kennedy screamed. I'll get even with you for this. Wyatt and Bat pulled Kennedy to his feet. Which one of you shot my horse? I did, answered Wyatt. I hated to do it. It was a beauty. The lawman led Kennedy back to the sod house and found a way to wrap up Kennedy's arm. They had no sympathy for him. His shirt was saturated with blood, and he wouldn't stop running his mouth. Finally, when loss of blood overtook him, he sobbed once, crying, Dora's dead, as if he had just lost his first love. The cowboys that had taken out of Dodge after the posse had wisely changed their objective, deciding to run for Mifflin Kennedy's ranch in Corpus Christi to tell their boss that a posse was hunting his son. It wouldn't be long before Mifflin arrived in Dodge City with his band of his loyal cowboys as well as his attorneys. Mifflin and his legal team, outfitted in their finest, made their first appearance at the funeral of Dora Hand, 
where Mayor Kelly saw them standing a couple hundred yards away as the casket was lowered. Kelly's anger rose, and he kept watching as they mounted their horses and rode back to the hotel. Their plan was to get all the information they could, spread some money around, and get the names of the witnesses who saw Kennedy leave the bar and later leave town on a fast horse after the shooting. With no witnesses, there'd be no conviction. They then started spreading the word that James Kennedy had done nothing wrong. It was the law in Dodge that was guilty of all the wrongdoing. On October 6th, the townspeople saw the posse returning with a bloody James Kennedy tied to a borrowed horse. When they pulled up at the jail, Kennedy couldn't dismount because of his injury. Bat yanked him off his horse, and James screamed in pain. "'You should have killed me,' James said to Bat. "'Don't think I didn't consider it,' answered Bat. William Duffy received them at the jailhouse. He had been sent back to watch the jail in their absence. Bat sent him out for Dr. T.L. McCarty, who arrived within minutes. When he went in, Bat and Duffy stood outside to watch the group of cowhands who had been gathering outside. They soon broke up and headed for the saloon. Inside, Dr. McCarty was digging the bullet out of Kennedy's wrecked shoulder. He motioned for Bill Tillman to hold Kennedy still so he could finish his work. He plunged the forceps into the bullet hole, and Kennedy screamed in pain. The cry could be heard out in the street and probably in half the town. Wyatt, still standing outside, was thinking that a few more of those screams might bring the Kennedy's cowboy friends running. Wyatt had been up against this before, just a year ago with a Texas prisoner. A cattle owner had made a big sale in town and decided to go on a spree on Front Street. The drunk cattleman took the party into a saloon where he bought the house a round of drinks and danced with the soiled doves. Then he got angry with the fiddle player over his not knowing a tune and began beating him over the head. The fiddler, bleeding heavily, ran out of the saloon with the cattleman in hot pursuit. Wyatt disarmed the cattleman and took him to jail. A crowd soon gathered outside, and soon Bob Wright, a member of the Kansas State Legislature, was threatening Wyatt to release his prisoner. "'You'll let him go if you know what's good for you,' he threatened. Wright had entered the jail. Wyatt made sure the prisoner's cell door was locked and pocketed the key. Bob grabbed Wyatt's arm to get to the key. "'If you don't let him out, we'll have a new marshal tomorrow,' Wright threatened. Wyatt removed the key, unlocked the cell door, and shoved Bob Wright into the cell. Later, Wyatt told Mayor Kelly, "'If I'd done anything else, I would have had to leave town because I'd have lost whatever it is I've got with these troublemakers.'" Wyatt finally couldn't stomach hearing Kennedy crying and walked away. Bat had gone over to the Long Branch and was sitting down to a card game. He was only half concentrating on the cards. His younger brother Jim was sitting at the bar with Deputy William Duffy. At the opposite end of the bar sat four cowboys who rode for the King Ranch. A pair of locals wandered in and sat between Masterson and the Texas Cowboys. One of them caught Bat's eye in the mirror behind the bar and said loudly, I bet you can hear Kennedy hollering all the way to Ellsworth. The King Ranch Cowboys shot Masters in a hard look. Bat replied, If he wanted to avoid hardship, he shouldn't have gone around shooting women. The Texans kept glaring. Bat settled down in his chair, ignored them, and continued his game. When the stage pulled up the next day, Fanny Gerritsen walked to the stage door, waiting for a hand up. She paused and looked up and down Front Street. It was a last look. It was she who had encouraged Dora Hand to come to Dodge City, a real live western town, where opportunity was everywhere. 
Less than two weeks after James Kennedy was arrested, the posse members were told to meet at the sheriff's office where the trial would take place. On the way to the sheriff's office, Wyatt spotted a pair of cowboys who rode for Mifflin Kennedy standing on either side of the stable laborer who was expected to testify at the trial. His testimony would place Kennedy on Front Street at the hour before the shooting, 3 a.m., with his recently purchased getaway horse. They were talking to the laborer in threatening tones. When they saw Wyatt, however, their demeanor changed, and they laughed and slapped the laborer on the back as if they had just shared a joke. Wyatt kept walking. When he arrived at the sheriff's office, Mifflin Kennedy was there, surrounded by his attorneys, and the proceedings began. According to rumors that popped up after the trial, Mifflin had brought a saddlebag to town stuffed with $25,000 in cash. In 1878, that would have been a kingly sum, enough to buy a huge house and maybe a saloon or two on the side. The officers testified to James Kennedy's suspicious behavior the night of Dorahan's murder and recounted Kennedy's actions and confession when he asked if Kelly was dead, and then was told that he had killed Dora Hand. Not one witness besides the posse members showed. They'd all been warned off. And the only way that Kennedy's bunch of thugs could have gotten the witness list was through Mifflin's attorneys. Intimidation still goes on today, including intimidation of the jury. I had a family member on jury not too many years ago for a young man accused of armed robbery, and her name was read aloud in court. The only purpose that could serve is to frighten the jury members. Her right to privacy was completely ignored. Such games are played by defense attorneys in courtrooms every day, and it's sad. After two hours, the doors to the sheriff's office opened, and James Kennedy was escorted out by the battery of attorneys and a smiling Mifflin Kennedy. The members of the posse watched in disgust as Kennedy was lifted onto a wagon for the trip back to his daddy's ranch. On October 29th, the Dodge City Times reported that James Kennedy was released due to insufficient evidence. Kennedy was acquitted before Judge Cook. History doesn't tell us how well Judge Cook fared in the days, weeks, and months after, but a lot of people's guess was that he was living pretty large. When the news broke, the Dodge City residents were enraged. There was speculation that the judge had been paid off. There was talk that Mifflin Kennedy's rich cattlemen associates had helped to pay for all those attorneys. And back in those days, the Cattlemen's Associations weren't averse to hiring gunmen to kill people who stood in the way of their making their fortunes, be those rustlers or lawmen. Wyatt would later admit that the Kennedy trial, as well as a similar incident a few months later, had soured his outlook on law enforcement. In January of 1879, Bat had arrested a criminal named Dutch Henry in Colorado and brought him back to Dodge to face charges of horse theft, only to see him set free due to lack of evidence, despite the fact that he'd been caught with the stolen horses. Wyatt grew even more embittered when the city council cut the police force's pay a month later. The city council could be heard complaining that the police force was too violent with offenders, that they had too much power, and that they were scaring away the cattlemen whose honest employees just wanted to have a little fun and spend some money. Defund the police, they cried. And so they did. Wyatt would leave Dodge within months of the incident. He would eventually end up in Tombstone, and you all know that story. If you'd like to know more about his busy and long life, check out our two-episode Wyatt Earp series by searching your podcast host or Google 1001 Heroes plus Wyatt Earp. Less than a year after Dora Hand's death, Bat lost the election for sheriff to George Hinkle, who was running on what you would today call a defund-the-police ticket. 
the Ford County Globe reported that Hinkle would save the taxpayers the expense of pursuing alleged lawbreakers who would only be found not guilty later on. Bat was bitter and left office in February of 1880, making his way to the Colorado gold fields. He soon took an interest in prize fighting and became a leading authority on the sport, attending almost every important match and title fight in the U.S. He moved to New York City in 1902, where he ended up working as a sports writer for one of New York City's papers, the Morning Telegraph. He was to become close friends with Teddy Roosevelt, who named Bat as one of the official White House gunfighters, along with Pat Garrett, the man who finally caught Billy the Kid, and Ben Daniels, the legendary Pima County lawman and rough rider, who had joined the Rough Riders at age 46 and proved himself to be a valuable leader. Daniels had a spotty background, however, which drew a lot of negative attention, and that cost him a job as an Arizona marshal. But Roosevelt was loyal to his Rough Riders and offered him a well-paying job as superintendent of the Yuma prison. Bad Masterson died at his work desk at the Morning Telegraph in 1921. The days of the Old West were far behind him. The Canadian-born buffalo hunter, Indian fighter, lawman, fight promoter, and sports writer, with his bowler hat and silver-handled cane, had become an American legend. Bill Tillman was to become Marshal of Dodge, and stayed busy learning all he could about the law, hoping he could prevent situations such as what had happened at the Kennedy trial. He remained a lawman, moving to Oklahoma, as we mentioned in Part 1, and building a reputation as a tough but fair lawman and crime fighter. He died in 1924 at age 70, when he was shot and killed by a corrupt prohibition agent in Cromwell, Oklahoma. Much of the fame he achieved is attributed to his second wife, who published his biography in 1949. In 1960, he was inducted into the Hall of Great Westerners in the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, which is a worthwhile stop in Oklahoma City. The Kennedys escorted James home, where he reveled in the notoriety that surrounded his escaping the clutches of the Kansas lawmen. The injuries he had sustained after the murder of Dora Hand left him a cripple, but he was still anxious to prove that the shattered left arm did not affect his gunplay. He even learned to use his left arm to draw his weapon, although he was a natural right-hander. In 1880, he managed to pick on and call out two men in Colorado, killing both of them in a gunfight. Whether they were armed or not isn't recorded, but it increased his stature and reputation among the lowlifes who looked up to him. In 1882, James settled down and married the daughter of a wealthy landowner, focusing on the family business and working closely with his father, who never did have a problem with his son murdering Dora Hand, or anyone else for that matter. James's neighbors in Corpus Christi, Texas, thought highly of him as well, according to an article in the local paper which called him a man of industry with good business qualifications and a trusted manager of Mifflin's large ranch and cattle business. Which goes to show that when you throw a few dollars at the newspaper, don't write anything. James died on December 29, 1884, of tuberculosis, only six years after the Dodge City incident. News of his death was well received in Dodge City, especially by Mayor Kelly. He had taken the death of Dora Hand very hard, even more so due to the fact that the bullet that killed her was intended for him. In 1910, after his business burned down, he moved to the soldier's home at Fort Dodge and died on September 8, 1912, also from tuberculosis, at the age of 79. Charlie Bassett left Dodge after Kennedy's trial, having had enough of serving as lawman in a town that could be bought off so easily. He went to New Mexico, where he worked as a guard for the Adams Express Company. He did regular trips back to Dodge to see friends, and they tried to convince him to run for sheriff, but he wouldn't take the bait. 
He pursued some mining ventures in Colorado and Texas, and then finally wound up in Kansas City, where he owned and operated a number of saloons. Charlie crossed over the river at the age of 49 in January of 1896. You all know the story of Wyatt, his time as a saloon owner in Nome with Josie during the Alaska Gold Rush, and his final years in California. When he died on January 13, 1929, he had outlived them all. In 1927, he would write, I'm not ashamed of anything I did. Were it to be done over again, I would do exactly as I did at the time. If the outlaws and their friends and allies imagined that they could intimidate or exterminate the Earps by a process of assassination, and then hide behind alibis and the technicalities of the law, they simply missed their guess. And as it turned out, they missed by a long shot. After Wyatt's brothers were ambushed, and one of them killed, he went on a long hunt for the killers, and their friends, and accomplices. The unofficial toll, 150 men killed, all in our episode titled, Wyatt Earp, The Man Behind the Legend, Part 2, The Vendetta. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We greatly appreciate reviews, and I have a few recent reviews for you. The first one, five stars. Always something new to learn. As a history major, I love the content. I love the show, always learning something about the topic that I didn't know before. I love the way you present the story and facts. Keep up the good work. Down from Urkar, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Slanted History, two stars. Cherry-picked research for a political agenda. Good production and otherwise entertaining. Down from Prospect Farms, Apple Podcast, U.S. At Prospect Farms, you're invited to email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com and let me know just what that slanted history is. I got a real hunch that your school professors are the ones who have it wrong. And this one, five stars, great listen. I appreciate the structure and knowledge of this show. It's great. I just wish the episodes were numbered and or searchable. If you're using a podcast host, like Apple, or Stitcher.com, or any one of dozens of them, there's always a magnifying glass at the bottom. Click on that magnifying glass, and search for the name of the episode you're looking for, and you'll find it. Barring that, you can always go to Google, and search 1001 Heroes, plus, enter the name of the episode, and it'll come up, and and you'll have a number of places to go to to listen to that episode. As far as them being numbered, I never saw a point in doing that. In early podcasting, that was considered a necessity, but today, very few podcasts offer numbered episodes. And this one, most, five stars. I'm truly enjoying this podcast. Great information. I love the Old West and its many diverse characters. John and crew, keep up the good work, sir. I'm making my way as I've only recently discovered your work. I love the early colonial stories as well. Down from GMAR2, 812, Apple Podcast, U.S. Please do think of us at Patreon.com. Come on over and give us some support over there. For about the price of a cup of blended coffee, you can help 1001 make it to 2001. That website is Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Give it a try over there. We'd appreciate it, and we appreciate all of our sponsor supporters. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode at 1001 Heroes. Between now and then, you can also catch us at 1001 Stories for the Road podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales podcast, 
Our new and booming podcast, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, is doing very, very well. And 1001 Greatest Love Stories, right behind it. And 1001 Radio Days. And 1001 Radio Days, where we just received a bunch of new reviews, urging us to continue with yours truly, Johnny Dollar episodes, which a lot of people are enjoying right now. Thanks for being great listeners and fans, everyone. Everyone stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.